Now that we have a big picture view of the Bible, how do all the smaller parts fit in? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. I'm Alex Goodwin, joined by Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. We're in the middle of our series on the story of the Bible, and today is actually an extra episode that we added in, in, into the middle of the series because we wanted to explore how the six-act drama model actually impacts how we read individual stories and individual passages within the Bible. It's easy to slip into a kind of nearsightedness when we read, getting so focused on the story or the passage itself that we forget to zoom out and see it within the larger picture of the Bible's story. So today we're going to look at two well-known Bible passages and relocate them within the larger story of the Bible. Yeah, and Alex, these are interesting examples, I think, because they are common ones that are used in an isolated way, kind of taken out of the Bible and presented as standalone moral teaching from the Bible. So they're great examples to see how things are richer and better when you read them in context, in especially in light of the overall story, not just as isolated general statements within the Bible. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, I think the reality is that sometimes when we do what you just described, Glenn, when we read them, uh, these specific things located in a certain part of the story as part of the, the larger story, uh, then we misread them. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there, there are books, you know, that are written today about misreading the Bible through Western eyes and misreading the Bible through individual eyes. And, you know, we don't want to misread. And so this will be a good exercise. It'll be fun to, uh, to see how we normally sometimes see these things, but to see them in their better context. So the first passage that we're going to take a look at is the Ten Commandments. And we're actually not going to read all Ten Commandments themselves, but we will set the scene with with a couple of passages from Exodus. So if you want, you can pause the podcast and you can read the Ten Commandments just to kind of refamiliarize yourself with them. Um, but here are, are a couple of passages from Exodus 19 and 20, which notice I use chapter numbers to locate and reference a passage. So they're totally <laughs> fine for that, right? Totally fine, uh, Alex. It's okay. Yep. yep. <laughs> so a couple of passages from Exodus chapter 19, chapter 20 to, uh, to set the stage for the Ten Commandments. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel ca- camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then right before God gives the Ten Commandments, this is what he says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, so that's all from Exodus 19 and then the very, very beginning of Exodus 20, right before the commandments start. And I have to say, first of all, that this is a very personal thing for me because I grew up in a church that read the Ten Commandments every single Sunday morning. So I remember sitting there hearing the Ten Commandments week after week. And, you know, um, 
I miss a lot when something's told me one time, but if I hear it every week, I do start to remember things. <laughs> and and what I remember is that this was um, already, it struck me as I was sitting there just as a child in church, that this kind of a, some strange thing, right? Number one, like it used the word jealous to describe God. And I thought, well, I thought jealousy was a bad thing. Maybe it's okay for <laughs> him. And yeah. But I noticed, I mean, it's interesting that this ends up being a, a bigger point about the cultural context of the Ten Commandments. But I noticed that it was the men who were addressed, like, don't covet your neighbor's wife. But I thought, oh, it's interesting. Maybe the women don't have any problems with covetousness or something. Why aren't they mentioned? It's just the man who is looking over at his neighbor's stuff and told not to, to want to have what they have. So all of that, I didn't know the words then, right? But I did notice that there were specifics about the Ten Commandments that um, made it a little bit strange. But also, just clearly, the implication was, look, these are timeless moral principles that you're supposed to live by all the time. And they're for you. And it didn't really have anything for me to do with Israel or what was happening in the story. They just stood alone as commandments from God, good for all time, for all people everywhere. And that's how I, I thought about them. And then if hmm. I can just quickly mention a couple of cultural things that just really did jump out. One of the things that I also remember is the phrase graven image, which I don't think the contemporary translations use so much for the making of idols. So the point for me, as I was sitting there as a kid, I was thinking, okay, don't make a graven image. So don't carve a piece of wood or stone or something into an idol. And I, that's about the extent of my thought about what the danger of idolatry was. Hmm. But I had no idea that idolatry in our setting, it looks totally different. That we are in a culture that definitely has idols. But I wasn't thinking about that kind of idolatry. The things that I might give my allegiance to besides God, first of all, that nationalism or consumerism or any of the other isms that plague our society could become my idol, the thing that I pursue more than anything else. So, you know, all of this um, I learned more about later, but it just highlights the fact that the Ten Commandments actually are embedded in the story, the story of Israel at a certain time and place, but also that they were highly um, contextualized in terms of ancient Near Eastern culture. So slaves are mentioned, having animals. So the setting was an ancient nomadic you know, agrarian kind of society um, where slavery was common and wives were viewed as property. So uh, that's that's a thing that I think we can talk about some more today about the difference it makes when you read it as part of the story and not just as isolated commandments. And then one final thing I want to mention, and this is a thing that I also kind of grew up with, was hearing that the Judaism that Jesus um, began to address in the New Testament was a legalistic religion. And I think when we think of Judaism, oftentimes the charge by Christians is that they're trying to earn their salvation by obeying the law. And I just want to mention, really clear from what you read, Alex, that when God says, look, tell the Israelites, I carried them on eagle's wings. I rescued them first. I, I brought them salvation first, and then I gave them the Ten Commandments. I'm giving them this in the context of having already saved them. So they, I didn't come down and say, well, let's see how this goes if you obey these commandments for a while. And if you're good enough, 
maybe I'll think about rescuing you. No, he just acts out of his grace and mercy and rescued them. And then he said, now this is the context for our relationship going forward. Yeah, that's big. Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, and we can't go into the details, but it just gives you the contours of what's actually happening here in the setting of the Ten Commandments. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the setting is is so crucial. And, you know, one of the things that uh, should jump out to us in the story is that uh, this is a return to Mount Sinai for Moses, because this is the place where God initially met with him and, you know, commissioned him to go and to set his, his people free. And now he's back. And not alone this time, but with a whole group of people. And really what's going to happen here is there's going to be another agreement that's going to be made, only it's not just between God and Moses, but it's with, uh, with the whole, whole nation of Israel. But I think, think the early uh, hearers of this story you know, would have picked up on that and probably said, you know, something big is going down at Sinai. And, and indeed, <laughs> you know, it, it was. And, you know, I think this is what we're, we're trying to say in this passage is that what happens at Sinai is not simply the giving of the Ten Commandments, and that really the Ten Commandments are a subset of a bigger deal, mm-hmm. uh, kind of part of a package deal, if, if you will. And so it's at Sinai, and, and we can call it maybe the Sinai Summit, I think is maybe a way that <laughs> captures what a big deal this, this really, really is. And, and so, um, you know, what's going to happen here is that God is going to return to the covenant that he made with Abraham, that he said, you know, I'm going to make your family a great nation, and all the families of the world will be blessed through you. And now he's going to establish this, and he's going to ratify this covenant with, you know, Israel, uh, and he's going to make them, you know, God's special emissaries uh, to the rest of the world. So that's that's kind of what's going on there. But this covenant needs a shape. It it can't be an amorphous thing. There have to be these laws or these agreements that both parties would sign off on. And just a couple of things about the laws, and I'll move move quickly here. But these weren't suffocating laws. <laughs> um, mm. These people were used to laws. They'd lived under you know the Egyptian law code, and those laws sapped the life out of you. Uh, as a general rule, laws in the ancient, uh, you know, Near East were laws that um, came down hard on people. Uh, but these laws elevated people. They, the Near Eastern laws valued property over people. For example, the penalty for stealing was actually tougher than the penalty for murdering somebody. So as, these, as the Israelites are getting these laws, I, I think it would be safe to say they sounded like good news. To them, even before <laughs> good news was a thing in the New Testament, and as right. one writer said, these were really kind of the ethos of a good neighborhood. Mm. Nice. So, anyhow, th- this is the the big the big the big nut, if you will, in this passage is the establishing of this covenant, and of course, the covenant paves the way then for God to come back and live with His people. And you know, He's appeared episodically, but now He's coming back to taber with them. And I think the reason behind this is that because if they're going to become, you know, this kingdom of priests, and they're going to play this crucial, vital role for the rest of the nations, it's not going to happen by osmosis. 
God is going to need to be with his people. He's going to have to disciple them. He's going to have to help lead them as they work out this kind of new covenant lifestyle, which, you know, is the bigger part of this passage. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It goes on for three more chapters to talk about what this looks like specifically. And then, of course, the last piece of this big deal that gets done at Sinai is that this is all preparation then for them to be able to move back into the promised land, which is like Eden, you know, 2.0. So that's just an attempt, you know, to take the Ten Commandments and position them as a component of a much bigger deal and really something that's far more dynamic than just here's these 10 principles to live by. Yeah, that's really interesting. As you were talking, Paul, I was thinking, you know, the way most people use the Ten Commandments, when you see them kind of taken out of this context, this setting in the book of Exodus at a particular point in the story, and they just put them up on their wall or their refrigerator or in a courthouse, right, in Alabama, um, you've heard about the Ten Commandments being used these ways. It kind of feels like in those settings, it doesn't matter where in the Bible they may have happened to have been mentioned. They could be taken from anywhere and just used as standalone moral commandments from God. But what you're doing is setting it in a the story in a particular place. So this is Israel becoming a nation and being taken out of Egypt. And God is beginning his project in earnest with Israel right now. So this is kind of act three in the story started with God calling Abraham and saying he's going to do something for the whole world through Abraham's family, now God is getting serious about working this out with the nation of Israel that has grown into a whole group, large group of people. And so the setting kind of enriches what we think the Ten Commandments are, and we can see the role that the commandments play in this bigger story that is, as you say, a much bigger package. It's a much bigger deal. And I think it just makes our understanding of the whole set of commandments kind of richer and better as the role it plays in the story at a particular point in time. I mean, just yeah. one one more you know commentary here. Um, oftentimes, I hear people who are reading Exodus because because the story then shifts from Sinai to the creation of the tabernacle. And as, mm-hmm. as we all remember, that story goes on and on and on, and we get <laughs> two versions of it's it. It's repeated. It's repeated. Yeah, and, right. and people say, you know, why, what, what's the big deal? But the big deal is, is that God has, has developed this monumental um, summit, this, this new assignment for Israel that's going to change the entire world, and he's going to come live with them now to coach them into this new reality of who they're to be. And so therefore the tabernacle and God being with them, not just, you know, coming in the cool of the day as he did with, with Adam and Eve, but coming to tabernacle with them, this is a big deal. Yeah, and Glenn, one, one last thing on this before we move on, but I think you've, I've always seen, you know, cartoons or whatever of the Ten Commandments where, you know, there's two stone tablets, there's five commandments on one, five on the other, <laughs> you know, the, the font was too big to fit on one stone tablet or whatever. But, right. uh, but you've said that it's actually like two copies of this agreement, right? Like one for yeah, each party. So like you understand in the ancient Near East, it was a common thing for a king who ruled over a group of people to make what's called a suzerainty treaty or a kingship treaty with those people. And the stipulations of the agreement were always written down. 
the historical context, why I'm your king, all this stuff. And then there were two copies made and they were kept together someplace. So either party could reference the agreement and they each had a copy. So we have to think about when we hear two tablets kept in the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God now lives among his people, those are two complete copies. And one is God's copy and one is Israel's copy. So that each party of the agreement has a record of what they've agreed to, what they've been signed up for. So again, um, just understanding in context, the historical context and cultural setting helps us understand what's really going on when we read the stories. Obviously, you guys are just um, destroying Christian worldviews bit by bit here with, you know, (laughs) (laughs) kind of wrecking the Ten Commandments for for people's worldview and, um, you know, placing them in their proper place in the the Bible story and in Israel's story. Um, So just just like a month ago, we destroyed Christmas. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what we're into (laughs) around here. Just wrecking things for people. so, you know, we're saying that really the Ten Commandments are their their home is within Act Three or the the first covenant with Israel in in the Bible's overarching story. What what kind of place do they have for us today in Act Five? Yeah. So this is interesting because you know the, the Ten Commandments are used as standalone moral commandments from God that are timeless. And I just think it's interesting that later in the story. Um, after the renewal of God's people by Jesus, when the gospel's going out to the nations of the earth, and Paul writes to the Galatians, which is a place where Jewish agitators were coming and saying, look, it's great that you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but you need to take on the whole Torah. You need to be law keepers, not just followers of Jesus. And Paul fights this tooth and nail. He says, no, you don't understand what it means to believe in Jesus. So then he writes this to them. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it's so interesting to me that there's a shift that happens from Act 3 in the story to Act 5 in the story, with the Jesus event in the middle, of course, that changed everything. And now Paul doesn't go about listing Old Covenant commandments from the Torah, like even the Ten Commandments, but he's telling them, look, you have the Spirit now. The entire law is fulfilled if you follow the one command that Jesus gave to his disciples, love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you're doing that, you're not going to do the things that the Ten Commandments are trying to prohibit. So there's a shift in emphasis from rather than a list of things that you have to try to follow to a positive command to be a certain kind of person. And that's just a different framing of the entire thing. And I think that's what it means to read the Bible as a story that moves on. Does that mean the Ten Commandments are wrong? No. But but let's be honest. To understand them, you have to understand that patriarchy was part of the ancient culture, that slavery was part of the ancient culture, They thought of idolatry as a certain cultural form. We have other cultural forms of idolatry. So things change, even for something like the Ten Commandments. And we're actually better off following the new covenant command to simply love your neighbor as yourself. 
That's good, Glenn. You you might need to shift from uh, just writing books to being a preacher at some point. <laughs> there you I, go. I, I think that ship has sailed yeah. for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the second part that we're going to look at, the second passage is from the New Testament, straight out of Jesus' mouth. And uh, it actually takes place in the middle of the Sermon of the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, where he says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So, uh, kind of a big passage there, or a big uh, statement by Jesus. What are we supposed to do with this? Yeah, Alex, I think this is one of those passages that has caused a lot of consternation uh, for, for the people of God at a number of levels. And of course, those words that Jesus spoke, um, you know, medieval artists have had a heyday with them. And if you Google, you know, the broad and the narrow way, you'll see multiple paintings, including some modern ones. Um, but they're really, you know, some version of, uh, of a di divergent pathways. And the pathway to the left is very broad and it's cluttered with people kind of stepping all over each other. And then there's a much narrower path and there's, you know, just a, a smattering of people on that path. And the way that this passage has kind of taken on a life of its own is that it's been understood generally that this is the way things are in the kingdom of God. This is really um, the big, big picture, the consensus is that hell will be chock full of people, and there's just a trickle of people that are making their way uh, into heaven. And, you know, sadly, I think it's led to unwarranted fear. Um, you know, um, as a Christian, if only a few are making it in, am I going to get in? I think it kind of positions God as kind of an ogre, kind of a cranky father who you know, doesn't want his house to be overcrowded. And so narrow, you know, is, is the road. And so, you know, there are a lot of people that live with this in these tapes that are kind of playing in their head and um, frankly, you know, causing um, instead of Shalom, you know, just the opposite. So Paul, I'm thinking the same thing that we do with the 10 commandments we can do here. And that is look at the immediate context and look at the setting in the, the larger story that's happening in the Bible. So when you do that with this passage, as you mentioned, it's taken from the Sermon on the Mount, right? So that's in Matthew's Gospel. It's toward the beginning. So it starts, again, to use the handy chapter references. Uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Right in chapter 4, Jesus has just launched his ministry. So this is basically a launch event for Jesus. This is like his inauguration speech to Israel, kind of announcing his program as he's just coming onto the scene of Israel in the first century. And so what he says here about the, the broad and the narrow path has to be taken in the sense of what is Jesus saying to Israel at this moment in his ministry? So we have to remember the Sermon on the Mount was not simply a collection of timeless, moral, general statements that that are just good for everyone for all time, necessarily. Rather, Jesus is giving the program for his kingdom followers. So as he does that, he's saying something then specifically, I think, about what it means to follow Jesus, 
as opposed to the other options that were available in first century Israel. There were lots of other options. The Pharisees had a program. They were trying to get people signed up to that. Sadducees had a whole different take on things. The Essenes were out in the desert doing something even more strict than the Pharisees were, were teaching. And then you had the Zealots saying it's time to take up arms and fight. So you had lots of groups in first century Israel giving Israel lots of options for what it means to be a faithful Israelite in this time. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm calling you to follow me. I'm announcing the coming of the reign of God onto earth. Israel's destiny is about to be fulfilled. And I'm calling you to this specific path, not to all the other broad ways that we have of understanding what it means to be Israel in this time and in this place. So the setting within Matthew's gospel makes all the difference to what we think Jesus is doing with this passage. Yeah, and I think, you know, if we if we look at the setting um, and, and the dynamics that are there, the reality is, is that Jesus' way, uh, as, he's, as he's making these announcements, if you will, launching his new kingdom program, they're still a minority group, actually just a handful of 12 people and, right. you know, some other followers, some women that come on and help support the program. Uh, and, and then, you know, his, his support grows. But to your point, Glenn, at this existential moment in time, the broad road is the one of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essens and, and the Jesus, you know, road is a minority road. And that would, mm. that would continue for some time, even after Jesus, you know, is, dies on the cross and he's resurrected from the dead, you know, for another hundred years or so, the Jesus story and the Jesus movement is, is a minority story. And so he, he seems to be speaking into this moment and saying, switch paths, switch to, uh, mm-hmm. switch to the Jesus path. You know, it's interesting in Hebrews, which I think, you know, is one of the other three books that is written primarily to a Jewish audience, right? Right, um, right. We, we see a, a similar emphasis there. And, you know, we know that, um, you know, when Hebrews was written, um, you know, central to Roman law was the worship of the Caesars. And so everybody had to worship the Caesars. But it was really fascinating in, in history that they, the Romans made an exception for the Jewish nations. The Jewish mm. nation, they saw them as kind of a wonky, you know, group of misfits. Hey, if they want to go out and worship this one God, what the heck? You know, they just let them do it. But that same exception did not carry over into the Jesus movement. If you were in the Jesus movement and you were following this Messiah, um, you could be persecuted. You could be, Hmm. you know, you could be put to death. And so I think actually in Hebrews, you know, whoever the writer of Hebrews is, is addressing that dynamic. and. He even talks about it. You know, there were people that actually moved to the Jesus path, to the narrow path. And then when the heat got turned up, uh, the possible persecution, they moved back to the broad path. And some of those strange and difficult texts, you know, in Hebrews about falling away, I think is, is the writer saying, you were on the broad path, you moved to the narrow path, and now you've jumped back onto the broad path again. So, you know, this is this is what this story means within the the context of the of the Jewish setting. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. I think that lines up perfectly well with who Matthew's gospel was written to also. So we noted that within the story of Jesus, this comes at the beginning of his ministry, kind of his inauguration speech. But Matthew's gospel was, of course, written later, and it was written to Jewish Christians who were also in danger, like the audience of the book of Hebrews, in danger of reverting back to Judaism without following Jesus as the Messiah. So their temptation, apparently, was to do the same thing, like to abandon Jesus and go back to the other forms of Judaism that were common in that day. So the same thing about abandoning the narrow path of following Jesus, the specific way of Jesus, and reverting to a more general Judaism. And again, as you say, that would it would get them out of Roman persecution, but it would also get them out of what we know in the late first century was a pretty intense Jewish persecution of Jesus followers. And so um, there was kind of a double pressure there, if you will. So that helps us understand what these words of Jesus are actually calling people to and why, rather than this general scary statement that only a few souls are going to trickle into heaven and everybody else is going to hell in a handbasket. Just to expand on that a little bit, Glenn, I loved that. And I think the, the idea that, that the pressure for Jews in those days was twofold. It came not only from the Romans who said, you can't declare your God as Lord, but it was also coming from within their Jewish you know, colleagues who were saying, unless you come back to Judaism, you'll, you'll be basically booted out of the synagogue. And your national mm-hmm. life, uh, as you know it, this was not just a place where people came to worship, but this is where they networked. This is where they mixed. This is where commerce got done. And so this is what made the path the narrow path. And Jesus, I think, foresaw that. And even early on in his, his you know, inaugural address is prepping the nation to think in terms of, of, of being willing to leave Judaism and to join the Jesus movement. Interesting. And just to tie this in a little bit, with our earlier discussion, um, to follow Judaism was to continue to take on the yoke of the law. So Jesus, in calling them to follow his path, is also calling them to a new commandment, to simply love God above all and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's a positive command. So it's different than the following of Torah, which was a list of things you weren't supposed to do, to a more positive statement, to proactively love people well kind of illustrated like in his story of the Good Samaritan. Somebody who goes above and beyond to help somebody in need, not somebody who simply avoids doing wrong to people in a negative sense, but the positive step of action toward loving people in in very practical ways. So this way of Jesus is a new call for somebody who's been immersed in Judaism, and it really is uh, an option for them that is different than the other options within Judaism. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. So I think it'd be maybe helpful to have a few just summary closing thoughts here. I think some of our listeners might be wondering what the heck we're supposed to do with the Bible, right? Like we've, we've kind of gone into two passages here and there, uh, once you dig into them, we might be left wondering, okay, you know, I don't feel any inherent pressure in my day-to-day life to turn back towards Judaism or, you know, to go out and grab a piece of wood and carve a graven image or those sorts of things. So like how much work do we have to do or what does a kind of regular Bible reader today have to do to 
sift through the Bible, figure out which parts are quote unquote for us versus addressed to a certain people in a certain situation. Um, you know, stuff like that. What do, what do you guys think? Yeah. So my advice is to do two things. Number one, just like 10 commandments or Exodus chapter 20 later, they show up again in Deuteronomy five. But when you're reading the 10 commandments or thinking about them, just take the time to read the immediate context. So by reading Exodus 19, not just Exodus 20, it gives you a whole different way to think about the Ten Commandments. It frames it for you in terms of the bigger story that's happening in the call of Israel. And so same thing, by reading that statement from Jesus about the broad and the narrow path as, as choices, knowing that comes from the Sermon on the Mount and knowing what Jesus has just done in Matthew 4, and at, this is the launch of his ministry, just getting that immediate context, I think, enriches your understanding and gives you a better understanding of what was it like to hear this in the first place? Because that's what we're really after, first of all, in our Bible reading, is what did it mean to its first audience? And then as a secondary question, what does that mean for us now? And to realize that those are two different questions. And the first one has to be done well in order for the second one to be done right. And then the second thing is, what, what act of the story am I in? We talked about a six-act drama of the Bible. So just be aware of, am I in Act 3 now? This is before Jesus. This is all about the calling of Israel. I'm in Act 5 here. It's after the story of Jesus as the gospel's going out to all the nations of the world. What difference does it make to know what act of the story I'm in? And that'll help you again. Understand what is being said and what isn't being said that might happen later in the story. And it just gives you a better understanding so that you can start to enter into the story and live it yourself well by reading those passages in their right context. Yeah, I just might add this, that as you're reading the story, if you uh, come upon something and it seems to be constricting the story, shrinking the story, maybe even shrinking God, making him, you know, appear to be more dour. And, you know, instead of Paul's liberating statements that then John's liberating statements that God is love and God is light and God is bread and light and water mm. and all of those things. If you're reading a text and again, it seems to be constricting, then say, is there more, you know, to the story? So, you know, taking that last story that we did, for example, you know, narrow is the road, you know, that leads to life and broad is the road that leads to destruction. On the heels of that, Jesus is telling, you know, a parable about a wealthy landowner who gives a feast. And, you know, uh, when it's time for the feast to begin, he sends his servants out to call the people in, but the people he's invited have a bevy of excuses. And he's, he's kind of ticked off, but he says to his servants, then go, then go out to the country lanes. And, you know, compel them to come in so that my house will be full. <laughs> and mm -hmm. now we see, you know, a bigger picture of the heart of God, the same kind of picture of the heart of yeah. God that you see in Second Peter, where, you know, they're saying, how come, you know, God doesn't come back and, and close the drama because of all the unrighteousness and peril? And Peter says, you know why? Why God is taking so long to come back? Um, because, remember, the Lord's patience gives people more time to be saved. 
<laughs> and so mm-hmm. this is the heart of God. And again, when the, when the story seems to be constricting, look to the broader. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Just want to quickly thank everybody for all of the great feedback that you've emailed us and just uh, in our personal conversations. Uh, we know that folks out there are listening and that this has been helpful for people. So thanks for all that feedback. We're glad that you guys uh, are listening. If you've appreciated this podcast, we'd love it if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast provider is, if they um, allow for ratings and reviews and that sort of thing. Uh, Or just send an episode to a friend. You can find links to all the episodes on thebiblereset.com. It uh, it really just helps more people discover us and, and start listening for themselves. And hopefully this is just helpful content for people to help them get uh, reacquainted and reoriented and reconnected with the Bible. So that's going to do it for us for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you on the next one. Mm-hmm.